His scripture is 2 Thessalonians uh, 3, verse 13. I'll read it for us. As for you, brothers, do not grow weary in doing good. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Brian. I'm so glad you asked. It's a pleasure to be at Christ Presbyterian Church in Oxford. And, uh, you know, we in Memphis love to send some folks down here, and, and there are some here in this room uh, from Second Presbyterian and other churches in Memphis, and you all treat them so well that they're attracting others. Now, you've got to stop this business. We're going to lose all of our population in Memphis. But it's a pleasure to be here at this great church. You're growing and doing wonderful work. And especially it's a privilege to be here on the day when your kids are singing. I would say they're just about the cutest group of kids I've seen in the state of Mississippi. Now, that's saying a whole lot. I've seen a lot of cute kids in the state of Mississippi. Now, you notice I left our kids out because I'm not going to say they're cuter than our kids in Memphis. But they sure are cute. And it was good to see them this morning. It's good to see you on Missions Sunday. And this is an important Sunday in any church that has one. Because we're all looking at our role in partnering with Jesus Christ, nothing less than partnering with Jesus Christ in the Great Commission, in the work that he's given us to do. And this church is very generous. You give 10% of all of your uh, offerings to the external mission of Christ Presbyterian Church. And uh, I'm just grateful to hear that, and I commend you for it. And you also have children of your church like Rick who are now translating the scriptures in a, uh, a remote tribe. And it was such a wonderful uh, experience to hear his story this morning. Several of you are involved uh, with Palmer Home. We've heard from Tom Dixon here in Sunday School this morning. And both of those will be available, or at least Tom will be available tonight uh, for your meetings. And 133 kids at Palmer Home, who get the love of Jesus Christ. Several of you are involved in that. I commend you for it. There are other ministries like Reclaim and Marks and your food pantry and your ministry to immigrants. And in all of these things, I commend you. And I just challenge you with this. Those of us who are actively engaged in the external, external to the local church, the external mission of Christ, are the ones that people like me continue to go to to say, can you step it up? Uh, you think, well, why don't you ask somebody else? We're already busy. Well, here's why. There are only a few Marines in this world, and you're, you're the Marines. And so I come back to you and say the needs are great. We live in a very poor world, very poor world. We live in a very lost world. There are 8 billion people, we think, in this world, and it appears as only from spiritual demographers that only about 800 million of them are soundly converted. There are others who claim to be in Christian communities and so on. But only about 10% of the world's population appears to be soundly converted. There's an awful lot of work to do. And so when we come to a conference like this, of course, we're being educated about the various opportunities to be engaged so that we can pray for these. And I encourage you, if you don't have a regular prayer cycle to be thinking about that and get the specific needs of your mission on your prayer list. And then there are requests for volunteers. I know that your prison ministry would love to have some more men right now engaged in prison ministry, which is vitally important. Jesus himself mentions that at his second coming, that he will reward those who have visited those in prison. 
And there are those who need help in the food pantry. There are people who, uh, who are needed at Palmer Home. There are uh, tribes that do not have the Bible in their own language. We have about 7,000 languages in this world, and thousands of them yet uh, are to have a New Testament in their language. Some of you who are at Ole Miss who are studying, uh, Ole Miss graduates make great missionaries. I've already seen that. And I would encourage you to be thinking about the direction of your life with the issues that are before us in this world. How are you going to spend your life? Now, some of you are gifted to be doctors and lawyers and teachers and homemakers and all the rest, and those are honorable uh, occupations. But I encourage you to be thinking about whether your occupation might even be full-time mission work. Some of the missionaries who are here, some of the mission organizations that are represented can help you understand what that life is all about. So with that, we turn to a text that your missions committee chose. I didn't choose this text, but I'm really delighted that they did. And I think it'll be obvious to you as we look further at it, and if your Bibles are closed now, you can open them back up to 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. And while you're turning to that verse, let me give you a little bit of the background of 2 Thessalonians, which will help you understand this verse that we're going to examine. And by the way, you know the preacher's task is to take the scripture that is in front of us and to expound it, to interpret it, to explain it, and to apply it. So we're going to take one verse and we're going to carefully study it together. And uh, you think with one verse, maybe the preacher will be short. I know that's not my reputation, but I'll do my best uh, to look at one verse with you. But here's the background. You'll remember that the Apostle Paul, in his uh, first missionary journey, uh, established some churches in what we now would call Southeast Turkey, which has had its own disasters here recently, as you know. And on his second missionary journey, he wanted to go back and strengthen those churches, but he went on from there and sought to evangelize some new fields. Paul himself was from Tarsus, which is in Turkey. He was familiar with that area that then was called Asia. And so he went north to evangelize, and in a very unusual passage, we're told the Holy Spirit, God himself, prevented Paul from evangelizing in Bithynia, an area uh, uh, north of Turkey, uh, in northern Turkey. And I can only imagine how the Holy Spirit did that, but Paul was convinced, and he just began to wander west. And for those two months it would have taken him to go from Bithynia to the Aegean Sea, I've often wondered he, he must have wondered, where is the Lord and where is my mission? What's going on? Some of you are in a status like that. You're wondering what the Lord's doing with you right now. Well, he's taking you somewhere. That's the point. And by the time Paul gets to the Aegean, he, has, he doesn't know where he's to go, where he's to evangelize, but he has a dream that night and has a vision. There's a man from Europe across the Aegean Sea in the region of Macedonia. And he appears to Paul and says, Come over and help us. Europe, aha. So Paul leaves Asia, goes to Europe as the vision had commanded. And you remember he goes to Philippi and there, Philippian jailer, Lydia, the, the, the purple seller, cloth seller, and the demoniac little girl, all those become converts in the church in Philippi. He, of course, is abused there, you know, beaten and imprisoned. And he, then he goes south to Thessalonica 
the people to whom he's writing here in this letter. He stays at the home of a man named Jason, and he evangelizes within the synagogue, and there he argues with the people to explain to them this Jesus who died in Israel just years before and was raised and ascended to heaven, that's the Jewish Messiah. Some of them come to faith in Jesus Christ, put their faith in the Messiah. Some of them got very angry because they felt that Paul was reversing their Jewish traditions. They didn't appreciate that, their religious traditions. So they created a mob and they wanted to destroy Paul uh, but instead, they only got their hands on Jason. They beat up on him, took him to the city council. And they finally paid bail and got released. But meanwhile, Paul escapes to Berea, and uh, he preaches in Berea. And they had their, their Torahs open. They were listening and reasoning with him, and he commended them. But people from Thessalonica came down to Berea chasing him because they're still mad at him. At that point, Timothy and Silas said, Paul, you've got to get out of town. Not only do you have to get out of town, you've got to get out of the country. And the reason is we don't want our apostle destroyed. We don't want you to die. So they sent him off with some messengers to Athens. Now, if I were the apostle after what I'd been through in Philippi and Thessalonica and Berea, I get to Athens, I'm going to the spas, I'm going to take a break, take a little missionary vacation. I deserve it, Right? That's not what Paul did. He immediately goes to Mars Hill and preaches to the Areopagus, which probably is kind of a combination of Harvard faculty and the Supreme Court. I mean, th these are distinguished people, and Paul holds forth that great sermon in Acts 17. It doesn't say so in the text, but it looks like he gets nicely excused from Athens. He's all by himself, and he goes to Corinth, that ancient city that's kind of like Las Vegas and New Orleans combined. Okay, I know it's hard to get in your mind. Paul goes there by himself and preaches to the synagogue there until Timothy shows up with supplies. Meanwhile, Paul's providing for his own meals and his own nightly care. It's an amazing story. When he's in Corinth, he gets word about the Thessalonians, and he wrote to them 1 Thessalonians. After he wrote 1 Thessalonians, he got a message. And there were some things going on in Thessalonica that he wanted to respond to. That's 2 Thessalonians. Now, in the first chapter, you will see in 2 Thessalonians, Paul wants to commend them for holding forth even though they're being persecuted. Well, what do you expect? The apostle Paul gets persecuted. Of course, anybody who believes what he believes is also going to get persecuted. So they have many reasons for discouragement, many reasons for despair. Paul says, no, you've been holding strong. Second chapter, he starts to address a heresy that's taking place in Thessalonica. The church is only six months and it already has heresy. That's the way it goes. So when you have the gospel, you immediately get gospel substitutes and gospel decoys and gospel defects. And so it was in Thessalonica. Paul writes back to say, you all have heard that either Jesus has already come or he's coming like tomorrow and there's no need to work. You can just lay aside your, your occupations and your obligations, your family duties. Just lay those aside. Go up on the mountaintop, raise your hands, and wait for Jesus. Paul takes that on by explaining this man of lawlessness is going to come. And, of course, I'm going to talk to Paul when I get home. 
and uh, not home to Memphis, but when I get home to heaven, I'm going to say, Paul, do you realize that chapter has kept us in, in, in flummoxed mystery for, for 2,000 years, figuring out who the man of lawlessness is? And when you say 2 Thessalonians, if someone says, what do you think about 2 Thessalonians? They're looking for you to tell them who you think the man of lawlessness is. But actually, there's something more important in 2 Thessalonians, and that's chapter 3 where he begins to address those who are being idle because they're idly waiting for the return of Jesus Christ. Now, Jesus Christ is returning, and he's our only hope. And we, we fix our eyes on him for sure. All the time we're fixed on him. But while our eyes are fixed on him, we don't become idle. We work hard. And he even says to the Thessalonians, he said, if you don't work, you shouldn't eat. And then he says to the rest of the people who are working, don't feed those people who are not eating, who are not working, who should be working. So church discipline is enjoined upon the church even after six months of existence. But now we come to our verse, verse 13. Now he turns his attention toward those who are not idle, those who have engaged the work. And he says to them just what we read, as for you, brothers, do not grow weary in doing good. Do not grow weary in doing good. You know they have reasons to be weary. So do you. It may seem a little odd this morning that after a week of tragedy that Les has already mentioned to us and we've prayed about with tornadoes that are devastating some of our neighbors and fellow countrymen and then the shooter who takes the lives of little children as well as adults. And on a Sunday, when our beautiful, lovely children come forward and wave the palm branches, it may seem a little awkward because in your mind, you're quite aware that Chad and Jada Scruggs don't have their daughter anymore, little Hallie. And there are other families that don't have their kids, and we celebrate with ours this morning. It feels a little awkward, doesn't it? And it feels a little awkward for us to be so happy about Palm Sunday and the celebration of Jesus, the Prince of Peace, coming in on an animal of peace, the donkey, into Jerusalem. You can't help but celebrate it, but it does feel a little awkward today. But I want to suggest to you it's not really awkward at all. It's actually very appropriate. Do you think that when Jesus was coming down the Mount of Olives, and some of you have been there, do you think that when he was coming down the Mount of Olives, he was not aware that at the base of that little journey, at the base of the Mount of Olives, was a garden called Gethsemane? Do you think he wasn't aware that four days later he'd be in that garden pleading with his father, except for the father's will, that he would wish that the cup that was his to drink would pass from him and he wouldn't have to drink it? Do you think that Jesus was unaware that what was waiting for him was the hostility and the violence, the murderous intentions of religious leaders and military leaders? Do you think that there was no sadness in his heart on Palm Sunday? Of course there was. So why did he do it? Why did he allow the celebration to take place? And why did he go through all this? For one reason, brothers and sisters, it was because of his mission. He came to do his father's will and to lay down his own life for what his mission was. And he had taught his disciples for three years, if anyone would come after me, he must do the same thing. 
He must deny himself and take up a cross, the instrument of execution, and follow me. It's very appropriate that this is Palm Sunday in the midst of much sadness. It's appropriate that it's Palm Sunday on Missions Sunday because if you're going to engage his mission and do the good works that he wants us to do, you will face a cross. You will be carrying a cross. So I'd like for us to look at this text then that becomes very relevant to us. As for you, brothers and sisters, do not grow weary in doing good. Now, when I look at this text that was assigned to us, I had some immediate questions in my own mind. For example, what is the good work he wants us to do? Secondly, what opposition do I face that would cause me to grow weary? And thirdly, how do I keep from growing weary in this work? Because we have so many reasons to become weary in it. Some of you may say, I don't grow weary because I hadn't gotten the work in the first place. Well, if, if that's you, I pray that today is the day that you begin a work which will sometimes cause you to become weary, the Christian work. So I want us to look at this verse with these questions in mind. In order to answer them, we're going to look at the verse in reverse order. You know, Hebrew reads uh, right to left instead of left to right. Maybe it's the Hebrew uh, in me, but... Uh, or if you're dyslexic, you'll love this sermon because the outline is in reverse. But let's look at it. The first thing we want to ask is about what it means to do good. What is this good? And here's what I would say to that. This is the first point I'd like to make with you from the text. The, the good we are to do is the good that Jesus did. The good that you and I are to do is the good that Jesus did. Now, this word uh, doing good is actually one word in the Greek, and it's made up of two words, doing and good. (laughs) The word good in Greek is a word, this particular word, there are two words for good that are common, but this one particularly means beautiful, suitable, fitting. For example, you remember when Mary anointed Jesus and Judas and the disciples chided her, for wasting her perfume on Jesus because it was worth a year's wages. And they said, Judas said, this could have been given to the poor. Well, we all know Judas. He wouldn't have given it to the poor. But that's what he said to chide Mary. And Jesus defended her and said, leave her alone. And this is what he said. She's done something beautiful for me. It's the same word. It's beautiful. He loves it. It's gorgeous. Those are the works that we're given to do. They're beautiful. Uh, Paul says at the end of his life, you know, in 2 Timothy, he said, I've fought the good, kalos, the good fight. It's a beautiful fight. It's the right fight to fight. And we know Paul said elsewhere in Galatians chapter 6, he said roughly the same thing. Do not become weary in doing kalos, doing good. What is this good? Well, clearly, we're the followers of Jesus Christ. If you're a disciple, you follow him. If you're not following him, you're not a disciple because disciples follow. It's that simple. So a disciple is a person who follows him. That means you imitate him. Now, you do it by his power. We'll speak about that in a moment. 
We do it by his power, but he's the goal. We're moving toward him. We're imitating him. We're in his sandal steps all the way. That's the Christian life. So we want to look at what Jesus was doing, the good that he was doing. So I commend you to turn back to me, keep your finger in 2 Thessalonians, but look at Matthew chapter 4. Matthew frames up chapters 5 through 9 with bookends. He gives roughly the same words in 4.23 that you get in 9.35. Now let's look at those words in 4.23. It is said of Jesus that he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. You get roughly the same words in 9.35. What is it bookending? Preaching and teaching and healing. Look at Chapters 5 through 7, you get the Sermon on the Mount, his teaching and preaching. And then in chapters 8 and 9 of Matthew, you get his healing. So that's the ministry of Jesus. And he says, come follow me. Come imitate me. Those are the good works. Let's look at them. He says, teaching. Do you realize, brothers and sisters, if you are in Christ, you're meant to be a teacher. You remember the writer of Hebrews Uh, excoriates his readers, he says, I know you and you should all be teachers by now, but we're still having to feed you milk like infants instead of meat. You say, well, pastor, I, I can't do what you're doing. Get behind a pulpit and speak in front of hundreds of people. I'm not saying that. You can say, well, I don't even think I could teach a science school class of my own peers. I know very few people can I'm not even sure I could lead a small group, I understand. But you can teach somebody. And oftentimes, it's in the external mission of the church. Christ Presbyterian has fabulous pastors, and I know you've got good teachers. And if you're asked to teach here, you should respond. But if you're not, you know what that means? You're to teach somewhere else. How about Palmer School? Uh, How about Reclaim? How about some other places here locally that need teachers? How about the public schools with kids who can't read by the time they get to the fourth grade and you volunteer to be a reading circle leader? And guess what happens when you do that? When you walk off that campus, you'll see their mama in the front lawn of the school and you get to evangelize her in the front lawn of the school because you've cared for people you've taught. Sometimes all you need to do is go down 10 years. If you're 20... Go down to 10-year-olds, I'll guarantee you, you'll have an audience. If that doesn't work, go down another five. If that doesn't work, you'll end up in the nursery and nobody will tell you no. So there's, there's always a place for you. You're growing and learning so that you can share what you know. Now, the second thing that Jesus says that is the good work is preaching. You say, well, now I know I'm not qualified to do that. Well, hang on just a minute. The word preaching in the New Testament occurs about 20 times. Clearly, 19 of those times, and maybe 20, I'm not sure about the 20th, but the 19 of those 20 times, preaching has to do with our message to the outside world. We Christians have begun to speak of preaching as primarily, if not exclusively, for the pulpit among Christian people in worship. And I agree we should preach to God's people every Sunday. We preach Christ. But the intent in the New Testament of the proclaimers, it's all the people proclaiming to people who don't know Jesus Christ. And so I want to ask you, how's your preaching life coming? (laughs) 
And then healing. We're to be in the healing business. In fact, your very mission statement at Christ Presbyterian concludes with being sent out from the hope and the home to the healing of the nations. You get healed here. Why? So that you can go heal other people. These are the good works. Some years ago, I had the inimitable pleasure of just having an afternoon with the renowned Dr. Peter Drucker, who was sort of the management guru of the 20th century. By the time I got to him, he was in his 80s, but sharp as a tack. He sat on a stool, and the rest of us listened for about three hours of stream of consciousness. I'll never forget several of the things he said. This was one of them. He said, folks, uh, every institution and every individual should ask themselves two questions. Number one, what's business? Number two, how's business? If you're in business, commercial business, you know those are good questions. What is your business? And how's your business going? I think it's a great set of questions for any Christian. What's your business? Jesus said five times. If he says something five times in 40 days before he ascends, I assume this is important. And he says, go and make disciples. Go into all the world. Proclaim the gospel. We are to be his representatives right now in this broken world with all of its sorrows and with all of our sorrows and distresses. That's the business. And I have to ask you, how's business? I'd like to ask Christian people, is your life right now your best answer to the Great Commission? And if it's not, let's think about our teaching, our preaching, our healing. Are we evangelizing our neighbor? Are we even thinking about them? Are we praying for them? Do we have a strategy? I know you've got occupations, whether you're a student or a business person or a homemaker. Those are your occupations. I'm talking about your vocation. Vocation comes from the Latin word vocari, which means to call. That's your calling. What's your calling? Follow him. That's your vocation. How's your vocation coming? That's the question we need to ask when we look at these words, doing good. Now, secondly, let's look at the middle of this verse where he says, do not grow weary. And, of course, that's the point we want to make. We know what now doing good is. Secondly, don't grow weary in it. We have all kinds of reasons to grow weary. We have physical reasons. I remember, uh, well, of course, as an old person now, this is precious to me, but I remember one of our old members at Second Presbyterian, those of you who spent some time there will know, Mary Montgomery. She was a feisty older woman who said what she thought. She was a wonderful Christian woman and a leader in our church. Well, by, by the time this happened, she was getting close to 90, and I was sitting in the chancel waiting for the service to start, and she starts waddling in behind her walker, just like this. And so about the time she got to the communion table, I realized, I, I want to come down and just say hi to Mary. So I got out of my chair, came down, gave her a hug, said, Mary, how you doing? She said, Pastor. I said, yes, ma'am. She said, what did the snail say when he was riding on the turtle's back? I said, Mary, I don't know what the snail said when he was riding on the turtle's back. She said, wee. So we old folks know what it's like to be decrepit and have our bodies start falling apart. As for you brothers, 
don't grow weary in doing good. I don't find the word retirement a very relevant one in the Bible. People ask me, what are you going to do after retirement? I say, I'll be dead then because I don't look forward to retirement. I look forward to death. Well, what's in your, what's in your bucket list? Kick in the bucket. That's my bucket list. <laughs> so as long as we have life and breath, let me say to you, I don't care who you are. I don't care what your physical condition. I do care, but it doesn't matter what your physical condition is. As for you, brothers, don't grow weary in doing good. We have emotional hindrances as well, and we've been through it this week. We've been devastated. There's been a lot of depression in Memphis, just like there has been in Oxford. There's been a lot of distress, a lot of anxiety we've experienced. And the Apostle Paul says, as for you, brothers and sisters, don't grow weary in doing good. There's such a thing as spiritual exhaustion. And uh, these Thessalonians had it. Where is Jesus? After all, he said he's coming back. Where is he? And they get discouraged. Where is Jesus in a tornado? Where is Jesus when a shooter comes into a church building? Where is he? Paul says, as for you, brothers and sisters, don't grow weary in doing good. Now, lastly, how in the world do we do this? It seems so contrary to our natural condition and attitudes. Well, this is at the very beginning when he says, as for you, brothers. And here's the third point I would make on this. We do these things because we're his people. We're called brothers and sisters. Do you recognize that in the New Testament, the most common description, the most common word that's used for the church is brothers? More than saints, more than church, more than other words that could be used. Why? Because it's precious. That's why. I'm your brother. I'm the Apostle Paul's brother. But more amazing to me is I am the brother of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's my brother, my older brother. I'm his little brother. That's an astonishing thing. And this is how we do it. We take our brotherly and sisterly heritage and legacy and we live it out as long as we have breath. Now, I'd just like to mention a perspective that we're given that's peculiar. It's a peculiar perspective of a brother or sister, a sibling of Jesus Christ. And let me give you five directions that we look that changes our perspective. Number one, we look up. Jesus said, go make disciples. And then he said at the very end of that comment in verse 20 of Matthew 28, for lo, I'll be with you always even to the end of the age. He's with us, brothers and sisters. That's where he is. He's right here. He's carrying out his will. He's doing it in and through you. Not only is he with us, he's in us. The Apostle Paul said that his task was to proclaim Christ and to admonish and warn everybody with all wisdom to present everyone perfect in Christ. What a goal. That's the goal of the church, to present every one of God's people, perfect in Christ, mature in Christ. And then he went on to say this, for this I toil, agonizing. The Greek word is agonizo. I agonize, I struggle. I struggle with all the energy, says Paul, that he powerfully works through me. So yes, we come to the end of our physical and emotional and spiritual strength quite readily but we don't come to the end of his. 
So we look up. We say, Lord, I can't do this. I don't know anything about helping the poor. I've never been in a food pantry. I've never talked to an immigrant. I don't speak Spanish. What? Lord, I can't do this. He said, I know you can't do it. You never could. But I can. If you'll just give me your body and give me your soul, I'll show you because I'll work through you. That's missions. Christ working through us. We look up. We also look back. And this table reminds us where we look back, to the cross. Jesus Christ is our champion. What did he do? He laid down his own life to carry out the mission of your welfare. We never stop looking back. This is what he's done for us. And now we're going to go in his name, lay down our lives for other people. We also look around and we see plenty of godly examples. Some of you have parents and grandparents whose example still shines before your face. Some of you don't have that. But you've got pastors and elders and deacons here and women leaders who can be your inspiring examples. And the writer of Hebrews says, don't forget the cloud of witnesses. All of those who've gone before us, like the Apostle Paul, who faced amazing emotional and physical distress he says in 1 Corinthians 11, he was stoned and whipped and imprisoned and mistreated and left for dead. He was hated by all those around him. And yet he fought the good fight and finished the race and kept the faith to the very end. And he says, imitate me. Paul says that to us. So we look around and see who's surrounding us and who will give us encouragement. Not only that, fourthly, we look out. We look out to the world. If you look out your back window in your dormitory or in your house, you probably see someone else who also is nicely accommodated. Maybe in your neighborhood, your neighbors have a nice pool in the back and two-car garage. Well, that's fine. Look out for them and evangelize them as well. But keep looking. Keep going out. And what will you see? You'll move into the Delta. and You'll see a lot of people living in homes that hardly have any electricity, who have educational standards that are way too low to find a good job. You'll find all kinds of things around you if you'll look out. And then if you start looking out in the world, you'll see that 85% of the pastors beyond the Atlantic and the Pacific have no theological resources whatsoever. And billions of lost people, Christians are those who look out. We have a new perspective. And then lastly, we look ahead. Do we ever? The Thessalonians were right about this. Jesus is coming back. And when he does, he tells us that it will be his pleasure to give us crowns and jewels in the crown. And you're going, I don't deserve anything. I know that. Uh, so does he. But he will reward you for every little teeny thing you even forgot about. For all the years of your life, he hasn't forgotten about a thing that you did, even though it was imperfect. And he won't reward you because of the intrinsic value of your work. He'll reward you because you belong to him. You're his people. I'll close with this. I, uh, some years ago, I was raking leaves in late November, and it was a cold day. I'd almost finished the job, and my five-year-old comes out of the house. On a cold day, his mother had put a snowsuit on him, and he had mittens, and the rake went way over his head. And he came out and said, Daddy, can I help? 
Of course, in my mind, I was thinking, please, no, Lord, this is going to take a lot longer to get this done. But I said, sure, David, glad to have you. Thanks for your help. So in about 10 minutes, he systematically spread my leaves all over the yard again. And then fortunately, he got cold. His nose was running and a mitten fell off. And he came over to me. He said, Daddy, I'm cold. I said, that's, David, that's fine. Go on in. Mom will get you some hot chocolate and take care of everything. And so he picks up his mitten and he got his rake. He starts to waddle back toward the house. And then he stops. And he turns around, waddles back out to me, sticks out his hand and says, can I have a quarter? <laughs> of course, I said, no, you didn't earn a quarter. You owe me a quarter. No, I didn't say that at all. I gave him 50 cents. Why? Because of the extraordinary work he had done, the intrinsic value of his leaf raking? No. I gave him 50 cents because that's my boy. That's my son. And I tell you, I'm charmed that he wants to come out and do his father's work. If I'm charmed, what do you think the Heavenly Father feels about you? When you say, Lord, I want to do your work. I want to be on your mission with my whole life. And I'm trusting you to help me not grow weary. The destination for people on the mission of Jesus Christ is nothing less than glory. Glory be to his name, both now and forevermore. Amen. Father, we come now to your table with gratitude for what Jesus has done, is doing by inviting us to your table, and will do for us when we gather around the wedding feast of the Lamb. So may this little foretaste, this hors d'oeuvre, remind us of the feast that awaits us on that last day. So Lord, now, Feed us that we may go and feed the world with your word and with living bread. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.